Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 65 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome again, Moira. Hello, Dave. So the topic we're going to talk about in this episode is long COVID. So here in Australia, we've certainly had a summer of lots of people getting COVID in the Omicron outbreak. And now the dust is settling, we're starting to think about, well, what's going to be the residual of that? Are we going to be seeing people with fatigue and is it really an issue? And certainly it seems to have been an issue in other countries that where there was outbreaks of COVID in sort of 2020, prior to vaccinations, where people were really becoming quite unwell. Well, I certainly think it is an issue. I've had plenty of people in my life with COVID, including myself, and it hit me pretty hard, actually. But I'm happy to say that, say, three weeks or so in, I felt like I had shaken it off. I can only imagine how bad it must be for those people who, you know, four weeks plus after the virus are still feeling rotten, in fact, sometimes feel worse in many ways. So yeah, I've, um, I've certainly seen it clinically and seen it um, just anecdotally. I, I imagine you're seeing a bit of it clinically. Yeah, absolutely. So starting to see people filtering through with persistent fatigue, non-restorative sleep, you know, after having had COVID. And yeah, like yourself, I caught it over the summer from other family members and yeah, it knocked me, knocked me for about four weeks or so and took me a while before I felt, yeah, okay, now that's behind me. I've sort of gotten past that and that's being fully vaccinated. So it's pretty significant. Yeah, it is really I'm fully vaccinated as well and pretty fit and healthy. Certainly took me by surprise. We're just both getting old, Moira. Maybe that's why it <laughs> took us a while to get over. I know. <laughs> So to help us understand more about long COVID and some of the treatment approaches, we spoke with Nathan Butler, and Nathan's an accredited exercise physiologist and founder of Active Health Clinic, and he's got over 20 years' experience working with people with other invisible illnesses such as ME-CFS and other chronic conditions. So thanks very much, Nathan, for giving us your time and for talking to us about long COVID. Absolute pleasure. So to start off with, what is long COVID? Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, long COVID is obviously a, a new phenomenon phenomenon because we haven't had it around for that long. But it's to put it simply, it's when people get rid of the virus um, but don't feel well again. And we're really looking at symptoms persisting, and it depends on the definitions, but for anything between like four and 12 weeks after the infection is gone, and that they present with a constellation of symptoms. And it's a diagnosis of exclusion, which often can be frustrating for people because they're saying, well, there has to be something wrong. I, I feel unwell. But most of the, the respiratory tests or the cardiac tests are coming back normal, but they're still not right. So it could be fatigue. It could be fast heart rates and dizziness. Um, it may be shortness of breaths or a persistent cough, but the symptoms really vary. What, do you get a sense yet of what proportion of people with COVID, go on to develop long COVID? Yeah, definitely. The, the, the data is really emerging and I think a pretty scary thing. So it's broken down into two groups. We've got the group that have been admitted to hospital and the people with mild infection. So for the people that uh, have been admitted to hospital, different studies show that it's actually around 74 to 80%. So that's pretty astronomical. That of those with of those with COVID, go on to yeah. Wow, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. So this is at twelve weeks, so three months after they come out of hospital, 
they're still yeah. unwell. And I think even scarier that only about 24% of those people actually have abnormal respiratory or chest x-rays or they're able to, act, or blood work and actually able to bring it back to something. So you've got 76% of people that have been to hospital and they've survived. <laughs> they've got yeah. through this, but are not well at that time. So the numbers are astronomical in, in that admitted population. I think that, you know, if you look at the percentage of people that are admitted compared to that have mild COVID, it is quite small. But I think probably the scariest one is actually, and again, this changes between studies, but conservatively, we know that people that have mild COVID, and this study comes out of uh, Scandinavia and the nursing population. So they saw people that actually had blood work for having COVID and population that weren't. And they found that 8% of people are not able to work to their full capacity in eight months. 12% can't socialise and 2% can't take care of themselves and their form of what we call activities of daily living. So this might be showering, cooking, cleaning, you know, what we call the basics. So if we look at that in work, 8% of the population. So that's if you think of the case numbers that we've had and like most recently being 5,000 a day, those numbers are really significant. So, you know, you're probably looking at least 400 people a day that are not going to get back into life in some capacity. And those numbers to me are just huge. And that's every day. So imagine when we had 50,000 cases. Um, so I think it's a real hidden epidemic. And I think something that we're starting to hear a lot more of, but we're only going to hear a lot more down the track. Yeah, and a lot of that data comes from Europe or the US, that sort of first wave, 2020, original variant, um, not vaccines. Thankfully, in Australia, our sort of Omicron wave over summer, most people are vaxxed. Um, maybe the Omicron variant's different. Is there any signal emerging as yet? I know it's early yeah. that that reduces the rates of long COVID. Yeah, look, it is early. And I mean, all this research has come out over the last year. So people are scrambling. And I think there's some anecdotal surveys, but looking at the actual research, we can see that there's a less incidence of long COVID in vaccinated populations, which is really encouraging. And I think that goes with the data of what we're talking about before and people being admitted, having a high likelihood of developing long COVID. But with the Omicron wave, it's still pretty early in this case. I mean, I think that you'd go on the assumption that there is more mild infection, so we wouldn't see as much based on those hospitalizations. Um, however, the data is not clear at this point in time. And are there any population groups that have been identified as being at higher risk of getting long COVID, sort of independent of the severity, but sort of coming in populations that are higher risk? Again, the data is very early, but I think that the people that we're seeing, so this is anecdotally in clinic, have a high allostatic load. So for the listeners that are looking at allostatic load, it's basically all the different stresses that we have in life upon us. So that could be physical, it could be cognitive, emotional, environmental, or even a, a disease process, like could be having diabetes or a thyroid condition. So a lot of people that um, have to get back to work quickly because they have had so much time off for COVID, uh, they might have new children, um, have other underlying conditions. So anything that puts a chronic stress or probably persistent stress is a nice way of putting on the body. I think believe that they're going, they're more likely to end up in this position. I'm just curious about the people you see, Nathan, in your clinic and probably anecdotal or whether it's in the research yet, um, just that sense of whether they're People give them a sense that, oh, you're, it's all in your mind, you're being a bit dramatic, you're being a bit, what are you just, you're just a bit stressed out or you're a bit anxious. That kind of thing is what I'm wondering about. 
Yeah. Look, I think that's a really great question. And I've had the privilege of working with what we term as invisible illnesses for the last yeah. few years. And yes. that could be ME, CFS or chronic fatigue syndrome. It could be pain syndromes like fibromyalgia or complex regional pain syndrome, um, orthostatic intolerance, POTS and dizziness. And these are three of the four major subgroups that we're seeing. And often people say that I wish I had a, a, a walking stick. I wish I had a, a plaster yeah, cast. A neck brace or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just, yeah. To prove yeah. that they're unwell. And I think that that is a common belief. Um, but on that, we do, there is a scientific evidence base for MECFS. We do see physiological changes, whether that be mitochondrial changes, whether that be immune function and calcium channel changes, as well as changes within the brain as well. And we see that across pain. Um, and I think it's becoming more commonly accepted that is a, an overload syndrome. It's something that the, the body is inappropriately expressing symptoms which relate back to that trauma. And I think that's why we're seeing similar symptoms in long COVID. So I think people often when they don't understand something will go back to their default and what they know. So if you come from maybe a psychology background, you might go, well, that sort of fits with anxiety. Or maybe if you come from a sleep background, then you go, well, we need to look for obstructive sleep apnea. There has to be a reason. And I think we always go back to those or what's comfortable yeah, for us. Our, our biases too, maybe, isn't it? It's yeah. our biases, our, our, our prism, which we see things through. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think that's where you know, we're very fortunate to work with some amazing specialists and individuals you know, that we can go back and say, well, is this going on? Because especially with coming from an allied health background, looking at you know, we don't diagnose and we need to exclude some pretty significant medical conditions that, that can come with this. So, you know, there's an interesting study looking at dementia um, after COVID and they're actually saying that there's an increased prevalence or is it that people are going, I don't feel like I'm quite what I used to be and then they're seek therefore seeking the relevant scans and, um, and follow-up. So we're not quite sure uh, within that. But I think coming back to the invisible illness, if I was going to say one thing for any practitioner or for any person, whether it be a sister, a brother, or a relative, is the word belief. You know, I always say no one grows up saying, yeah, I don't want to work and have a life and see my friends and yeah. not be able to shower. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just not yeah. who we are. Yeah. Yeah, and that's interesting. A couple of people I've seen with long COVID, you know, we talk about that invisible illness. They'd been to a long COVID clinic at one of the hospitals that had been set up and they'd really been looked for, do you have respiratory problem? Do you have cardiac problem? You don't have those things. Well, then you don't have long COVID, even though they had all the symptoms you were describing. So fatigue, orthostatic intolerance, post-exertional malaise, poor sleep. You know, they had all of those symptoms that we recognise some of the key symptoms of long COVID, but it was really the part that was validated was the measurable medical type of stuff that you could see on a test and not validating the, the stuff that's less visible, harder to measure. Yeah, and like I said before, the numbers where you're actually going to find an irregularity is actually really low. Like we're looking at around 20% of people. And, and I think this comes back to our normal biases. It, it takes a, a special person to want to work within invisible illnesses. Like it, this is something that is very different and we dedicate our lives to that. And a lot of our practitioners um, have been there and have done that. So when someone comes from, say, more of a, like a cardiac rehab, they're used to seeing, well, you've had a stent, you've had a heart attack, you, you know, this is our process, this is what we're going to go through. And there are very much those measurable outcomes. 
so that they'll probably have that bias towards more that cardiac rehab or looking at orthostatic intolerance. Whereas fatigue's one of those components that's really hard for people to understand. It doesn't fit within the respiratory or the cardiac or neurological uh, conditions that we see. And you're used to working with people with MECFS. Are you picking any differences between what you're seeing with people with long COVID and MECFS? Yeah, look, there's a, there's a lot of crossover. Um, I think that we, we're sort of putting it into three or four major subgroups. So the most prevalent symptom is fatigue. And probably defining fatigue is the number one thing. So fatigue is not being tired. That's, you know, what I have after I spend a day at work and with my children. You know, I'll sleep and I'll feel better. Um, fatigue is more like long haul jet lag or, you know, you just can't push through. Like you get up and you go, I can do this. And you go, no, I can't. And sleep is not necessarily the most refreshing. So I think understanding fatigue first and foremost is really important and screening that with your patients is really key and or with family. So I think we're seeing a subgroup that have that fatigue with post-exertional malaise and they have a significant overlap with MECFS. Um, in fact, I'd, I'd say it would be pretty much the same thing. And we see 85% of MECFS is triggered by a viral infection, such as Epstein-Barr virus, or it's known as glandular fever. But numbers are about 1%. And so we're seeing um, 2%, like in, in the conservative end, that limits day-to-day life. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're seeing a lot of that. But I suppose that we need to differentiate the other subgroups. So we have the one, the second most common is respiratory, which is a persistent cough, um, shortness of breath, and I think at this point in time, it's inappropriate shortness of breath. So it's if you're standing there, if you're uh, you know used to walking upstairs and it's, you're still getting short of breath, then that's the thing we're looking out for. Um, I think with sport and activity, it might again, is it is it appropriate for where you are? So looking at managing that is really important. And there's a few things that can be underlying that. Then the next most common is orthostatic intolerance or POTS, which basically means you don't regulate your blood pressure as well and have symptoms like lightheadedness, some nausea, aching in your limbs, so especially your lower limbs and even a fast heart rate. And as a result of that, anxiety can happen because of the body mimicking adrenaline. Uh, And then I think you have sort of a a deconditioning um, for some of those that have spent a long time in hospital. And then for those that have been unfortunate enough to be in ICU, then there's post-intensive care syndrome, which is often what we see and managing that too. So I think there's like a large spectrum and some have a crossover and you know, it's like the Olympic rings and they all will connect together and it's picking out what is the most limiting factor for them and then focusing upon that. So what do you think in a nutshell then? What do people in general, what can people do to improve their symptoms? So I think the first thing is to believe in yourself and to keep reaching out to your health professionals. I think it's a good result if you're checked out and you see your doctor and going, look, we can't find anything, but also say, don't stop there and don't say that it's in your head, that it's psychological. I mean, being this unwell has a psychological aspect. I mean, you're not enjoying life and it's, you get nervous, especially if you're short of breath, that can be a very terrifying experience. Yeah. So I think it's not ignoring that, but it's also saying, well, who can, how can I get help? You know, who can I reach out to? And it's something that, that's why we've designed the COVID recovery initiative is because there's so many people out there that need that and they need that support. So they can go and find other people that they can speak to and going, well, I'm not special, which is one of my favorite things to tell our patients and clients <laughs> um, and to then get some strategies around that. And I think whatever's the most limiting symptom needs to be focused upon 
And I think fatigue is probably going to be the most disabling. Now, it argued with a lot of things, but that needs to be treated first because if we don't treat the fatigue, then we can't treat some of the cardiac or respiratory things that require a lot of movement. So it's about sort of that chain of progression and having that full assessment, but belief in themselves and, and continue to reach out and ask questions. And, and where exactly, tell it sort of, can you spell out where and how people can get help? Yeah, definitely. Look, I always start like a little bit like the baseball, start with the pitcher, which is your GP. You know, the GPs are really great at making sure that you don't die. It's probably one of my favorite ways of putting it. And so they're going to screen you for all the other things and then refer you through to the appropriate people. So that could be a psychologist. It could not be a sleep physician, infectious diseases, a respiratory physician, a cardiologist, but then also looking at getting a referral to a team of people that are actually experienced in dealing with these invisible illnesses. So I think that, look, there's a few of of them, but there's not a lot of people that dedicate their lives to this. And look, I've shamelessly plugged the, you know, the clinic, the, the active health clinic that we see these people. And we've also set up the COVID recovery initiative, which is sort of a self-paced program over 30 days. It's accessible because we spend a lot of time with people and we can't cover everyone. We need to ensure that people get that right advice. But I think sort of stepping back and, and being able to pace, find your rhythm. And if you do those things and keep asking questions, then you're going to get the results that you'd like. Yeah, if someone's had COVID, they're sort of in that four to 12 week period or longer and feeling like they've still got symptoms, yeah, what do you suggest they do? Well, the first thing is to look at getting some support. So go to your doctors, go to your health professionals and have a chat. Then the next thing is provide yourself with some space for your body to heal. You know, every injury needs healing. And if we keep pushing through an injury, we're more likely to re-injure and then we can have some ongoing problems. So giving your body space to recover, you know, listening to it and talking about it would probably be my number one. And know that there's hope that you can recover and just keep speaking and talking about it until you're getting back to where you want to be. Yeah, thanks very much. And, you know, really appreciate the clinic that you've set up with Active Health Clinic and the COVID Recovery Initiative, because it really does give people somewhere to go, some resources um, to, you know, find others who've got similar symptoms, but also a way of trying to move forward and help themselves improve their symptoms. Yeah, thanks, David and Moira. I really appreciate it. And uh, I know that your work in this area, um, it's so valuable as well. So thank you for having me on here. I'm really grateful. I'm grateful, grateful for your time and and your expertise. Thanks so much, Nathan. So that was really great information from Nathan. What were some of your take-home messages, Moira? Yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, I think the thing that's really struck in my mind is he's, he's mentioned a few times this word belief. And I think it was twofold. He was talking really around the health practitioners believing the client or patient, um, which is really important. But it's also there was an element of him reminding the client or the patient, the person suffering with this long sort of post-viral fatigue, believe in yourself too. The whole don't lose hope. Hold hope that it, you will get a bit better. It's going to take some time though, and that a positive mindset will really help the whole, the whole process. So I, that was my psychology, my psychology bent on it all. What were some of the, the main standouts for you? Yeah, similar from me. So certainly that um, sort of sense that this is real. It's a real thing. It's not mm. just happens to people that are weak-minded or, you know, poor constitutions or who just they're not self-motivated enough. Come on, pick yourself up, get, get going. Yeah. No, nah, that ain't it. 
this is yeah. a this is a real thing, and it does affect a significant number of people who've had COVID, and mm-hmm. so it's really important. So well, that you, was yeah. Sorry to interrupt. That was the other thing I thought. I, I was a bit astounded by the the numbers. Yeah, we really hope that both vaccinated and Omicron variants, that's going to be less because the prevalence numbers with the original variant, the Delta variants and pre prior to vaccination, you know, they're pretty scary. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So if you're looking for more information, as Nathan talked about, he runs a really great resource called the COVID Recovery Initiative, which is a, lots of really helpful information and a community for people with long COVID to really find that support and find the information to help people improve and the resources of Active Health Clinic. So there'll be a proportion of people that despite that information and those strategies might need some individualised treatment. And so the clinic that Nathan runs can help to provide that. Moira, got to mention the Sleep Health Foundation. It's also a great source of resources for information about sleep. So if you're troubled by long COVID and part of that's not sleeping well or feeling fatigued, go to the Sleep Health Foundation for a look at their fact sheets because really, really great resource of information. So we'll use your expertise, Nathan. What's a tip for clinicians working with people with long COVID? The first thing is belief. Your These patients that are presenting to you haven't chosen to be unwell. They're not making it up and there can be a lot of different reasons. So believe in them, listen to them, and then educate them and explain their symptoms, why they're happening. And if you feel that you, you don't have that, then have a chat. Reach out to those people around you and get that support because this is something that we're all in together and are learning to manage. And at the end of the day, we just want to help the patients in front of us. So Moira, what's your pick for this episode? Well, the thing that's really taken my eye was the news just recently that the US Senate has passed a bill for permanent daylight savings time. Clearly it has to still pass the House of Representatives and then eventually, you know, it's, it's not fully you know, signed off yet. Um, but that really took me by surprise. I, I know there's been lots of talk overseas, particularly the US and Europe, about, you know, daylight savings time and perhaps perhaps um, stopping it and having, but I would have thought if you're going to you know, have permanent time, it would be permanent normal time. I'm, I was quite surprised that there is a, you know, that there's this big move for permanent daylight savings time. So I'll, I'll, I'll put a, a couple of links of the, um, the articles that have been in the news recently about that. And we probably should revisit that. We've talked about daylight savings in the past, but it's, it's certainly a hot topic. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, look out for that. We will cut some snippets out of some previous interviews about daylight saving. And here it's an interesting case study about you've got the science, you've got the sort of popular opinion, you've got other sort of stakeholders, and where does it fall? Well, with the US Senate, not with the science, at least it's, yeah. it seems. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, it was interesting to talk about um, it will help children play later at night. I thought, <laughs> what advantage is that to anyone? The parents wouldn't want that. <laughs> um, you know, get them playing in the daytime, get plenty of light. I think people forget there's still X amount of daylight. It doesn't, doesn't increase the amount of daylight. It just shifts the timing of the daylight. And I would have thought morning daylight is much more beneficial to us humans. And I think it might be leaning towards economic out- outcomes. But what was your, what's your pick? Well, my pick's a, an article that was in Faculty Opinions. Now, I've got to admit, I don't normally read Faculty Opinions. It's not on my sort of reading list. Um, <laughs> but the reason I found the article interesting 
is, you know, sometimes you think, oh, look, I really should look at, you know, do a bit of background reading in a particular area and work out sort of what the current state of play is. Mm. Well, it turns out this article is eight doyens in the field of cognitive behaviour therapy for insomnia who've got together and done exactly that. They've gone away, researched the literature, tried to look at, okay, what's the state of play now and where do we go from here? And so it's really that sort of a a well-researched, well-referenced opinion paper from people I really respect in the field. And so it's just been, I think that's a very helpful paper. Um, And it's, it's well, technical, highly referenced. But the second part of the paper is really in the where we go from here. It's in a, done in a Q&A sort of format. So it sort of posed the question, you know, is there a particular piece that we could take out of CBTI to make it shorter? And then answers mm-hmm. that and gives some reference. Or what is it that mediates the benefit? And could we do this in a different way? And gives the references and, right. and an answer. So really practical sort of paper and take my hat off to the effort and the work that would have gone into that for the people yeah. involved um, as authors. Wow. Um, but what yeah, that's a really, that? I can highly um, recommend that. Did, did they emphasize digital CBTI? But that's sort of the, the way of the future? Yeah, or? so certainly um, that there's a role for mm. digital CBTI. So th- the references aren't quite, um, you know, the very recent references. So I was involved in... Um, a paper that recently got published in Sleep Medicine Reviews of um, digital CBTI that I thought was a really high-quality paper and wrote an editorial about it. And that particular paper suggested that digital CBTI that has an avatar as part of it, so not a totally passive sort of self-help sort of thing, but something that's got an avatar as part of it, had equal effectiveness um, on most domains to -to face-to-face CBTI. And so if we're thinking of scalability and how we can sort of disseminate CBTI, and that's part of the focus of this current paper I'm talking about is, you know, what are the questions we need to answer to be able to scale it and disseminate it? It does seem that digital forms with an avatar, that seems to be an important part of it. Yeah, I'm not surprised there needs to be some person or just figure, you know, replacement person to, to guide the process. So in coming episodes, look out for some talk about the effects of sleep deprivation. You know, we hear a lot of stuff in the media about if I'm not sleeping, I'm going to get dementia. We hope to be able to ask some experts in the field, is that really true? Or is that a bit overblown? And what's the really the data behind that? And still working on finding some people to talk to about mechanisms of fatigue and how that might differ from some of the mechanisms of sleepiness and give us some ideas about targets, which is also relevant for things like long COVID where fatigue is a predominant symptom. So thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you've got ideas for other episodes, send us an email at podcast at sleephub.com.au and review us on iTunes. Tell your friends so that they can also subscribe to the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye for now. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 